Okay. So, hello. Uh, hello, friends. Welcome to my July 18th episode of my podcast. Uh, today, it's my pleasure to welcome my dear friend and colleague, Dr. I.P.S. Chabra. Uh, Dr. I.P.S. Chabra and I went to school together. We both graduated from University of Delhi, Maulana Azad Medical College in 1991. Uh, following that, he completed his internal medicine residency at Brookdale, University Medical Center in 96. He's board certified by the American Board of Internal Medicine and is a fellow of the American College of Physicians. He has extensive experience uh, handling uh, COVID-19 cases. They had uh, quite the surge a few months ago, which now we in Florida are following a few months later. Uh, so I wanted to invite uh, IPS today to the program. Welcome, IPS. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so much for inviting me, Vikas. You've been doing a tremendous job in uh, presenting timely and very important information. So, so I, I, I wanted to uh, ask uh, first from you, we are right in the middle of what you were in dealing with about two months ago. Uh, you know, we have a huge surge in Florida. How, how is the conditions in New York right now? At least in my hospital, which was the the center of the epidemic, the eye of the storm sort of uh, in Queens, uh, the border of Queens and Nassau County, we were in the worst uh, hit area. But right now, me personally, I have none, no COVID patients at all. And today I was talking to a infectious disease colleague of mine. And from what she told me, they did get seven new, newly diagnosed COVID patients, but then they were not that sick, requiring ventilation or going to the ICU. So things are quiet. Good, good. That that's that's wonderful to hear. I mean, you know, uh, when you were in the middle of it, and I know even now, just uh, you know, dealing with so many lost patients, uh, incredibly stressful time. Uh, sure. How how are you guys coping? How are the healthcare teams? I I know there's been a lot of attrition, uh, not only from the psychological trauma, but physically, <laughs> healthcare providers getting sick. So it was just like a response that sort of when you run for a code, except this code lasted for four months. Mm -hmm. That was the mentality. You have to respond. You're trained for it. You know you can do it. If you don't do it, who else will do it? Our patients yeah. need us. We just have to respond. And that was the mentality. Absolutely. And, and then once you do get involved, you have to make sure that you protect yourself. So right. we were making sure that I was lucky that our institution had the proper, not just enough PPE, but the proper PPE. There was no shortages in our institution right from the get-go. We were each allowed at least one brand new N95 every day. And the face shields and everything were plenty. So we were lucky in that respect. Yeah, no, that's uh, wonderful to hear. Uh, right now, we are hearing similar stories in uh, our neck of the woods, more so in South Florida, but even Tampa Bay, where I'm located. We've had a huge surge, 90 to 95 percent capacities occupied in the ICUs. Uh, and there is definitely a lot of stress among the uh, hospital workers, especially. So if you want to give us a little bit of insights as to uh, first of all, in terms of treatment, I know that when you were treating the COVID patients, you had a fair bit of experience with the remdesivir. You treated some patients with that? Yes, I did. And remdesivir was, we, our site was one of the sites for the trial with mm -hmm. Gilead. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, matter of fact, just today, the same infectious disease attending was telling me that they are, Gilead did uh, reach out to them about doing an outpatient trial for outpatient intravenous use of remdesivir. The eventual goal is to make remdesivir available as a nasal spray. Mm-hmm. So that'll be wonderful if that happens. So our criteria were very simple. Uh, you have to have a confirmed uh, COVID infection by PCR. Mm-hmm. A lot of times we were treating the patients without even bothering to check the labs uh, or check the swab because uh, the clinical presentation was absolutely that of COVID. But if they were to be part of this trial, they had to have that PCR swab. Mm-hmm. And then they had to be hypoxic, less than 94% on room air or on supplemental oxygen of some kind, such as uh, either nasal cannula or beyond. Mm-hmm. And they had to have good renal function. So we could not uh, enroll patients with the GFR less than 30. Mm-hmm. And also the other criteria was the liver functions. The liver mm-hmm. functions had to be pristine. The upper limit, five times upper limit of normal uh, for LFTs, we could not enroll. Mm-hmm. So, and then we tried to use remdesivir as early as possible, within the f- mm-hmm. preferably within the first five days. Mm-hmm. So is there a toxicity of remdesivir with the renal and hepatic toxicity that we know of? I'm not that familiar with the medicine. So we don't. That's why they do not want to take any chances. Okay. Okay. And did you see any unusual toxicities with it, the people you treated? I saw all kinds of things, whether it was from the drugs or was it from the disease itself. It's very hard to say because there was, it's a hyperinflamed situation at COVID. Right. There's inflammation everywhere. Even today, I saw some patients who have recovered from COVID. And as I was rounding, I was coming across some patients with headaches. And uh, Mm -hmm. I wasn't sure if it was really like some kind of post-COVID encephalitis that they're dealing with. Right. And uh, so it's very difficult to say, was it the drug that did it? One thing is for sure. I mean, these drugs are antivirals. And the other drugs that we are mixing in with those uh, remdesivir and other drugs such as IL-6 and IL-1 inhibitors that we had used at that time, mm-hmm. they did have a very strong uh, chance of secondary infections. That mm-hmm. I saw plenty. Mm-hmm. Sure. So very interesting you mentioned that. I think there is going to be an entity called the post-COVID syndrome. I don't have that much experience with COVID patients, but I had one recent consult outpatient, young gentleman who's actually a one of the technicians from the our cardiac cath lab at a local hospital mm-hmm. who acquired a COVID infection while working had a quite a severe case, developed PE post-op, uh, post-COVID. Uh, sure. That's why he came to see me, which obviously, you know, I kind of guided him through the anticoagulation. But this is now three months since his uh, episode, and he's still having these. He says, I'm neurologically, I'm just not there. And he's a very young, fit man. He's, he's very healthy, very health conscious. So he said, there's a little bit of a reaction delay in terms of when he's processing information. He's not as nimble with his hands. He's dropping things. And several people, it's not just one. There's at least two patients I have that have reported that. So I was wondering if you've seen any literature. I think there's going to be some things on this regard with the, with the post-COVID syndrome. So, yeah, I will share some slides uh, with you. They were released just today by our institution. So uh, what our institution is doing is every they record a video of the latest updates that are being uh, published every mm-hmm. Thursday, and they get the, the, the that video gets published on Saturday. So mm-hmm. in today's video, there were some case presentations of post-COVID uh, uh, encephalitis. There's one case that they're presenting of of press syndrome, po- uh, posterior reversible encephalopathy. Mm-hmm. 
mm -hmm. secondary to COVID. And the MRIs are very interesting. I'll share those slides with you so you can uh, post them uh, so the other peer folks can see it. And there are some psychiatric uh, processes also that our patients are facing. And uh, there's a there's some nice slides about that as well. So that data is being published right now. That's fascinating because we see this reversible posterior encephalopathy with some of the drugs we use, particularly Avastin, which is a VEGF right. inhibitor or interleukin inhibitors. We we were familiar with this, but now to see it in the context of COVID, that is absolutely fascinating. I mean, that just uh, boggles my mind. Yeah. So this is a disease that that attacks everything that comes in front of it. And there's inflammation everywhere and patients deteriorate very fast. So if there's one thing which I would tell my colleagues uh, who are uh, in the midst of treating this disease, you have to hit it early and you have to hit it hard with yeah. whatever you've got. And yeah. by now, there is hindsight. So there's data behind some of the drugs that we are trying to use. And uh, so then you can be guided by some real data rather than going blind as we were doing when we, when we started. We were throwing everything, including the kitchen sink. So, right. and we learned quite a lot from that. Yeah. And so, then what is? Talk, well, I'm sorry. Uh, the my, the thrombi. The, there's some data on. You, there are some nice slides that are floating around of the micro thrombi also. So you may not see a full blown PE. There mm -hmm. could be a, uh, a phenomena of micro thrombi everywhere that's causing shortness of breath and the fatigue and the myalgias and whatever. So that could be from. Uh, microthrombi and you basically typically we would monitor the d-dimer level and that right. that we have seen that super high in the thousands yeah and now pretty much anticoagulation was standard uh when Absolutely. anybody is hospitalized you know so right. that's right yeah. what is your experience with steroids i mean i know now we got dexamethasone study out uh, uh so we are obviously using that but what was your experience and what, what do you take of it so here's in lies the uh, the advantage of hindsight. When we were in the midst of it, at that time, steroids were actually discouraged because there were some guidelines that were saying that if you use steroids, you're prolonging the viremia or the viral shedding. Mm -hmm. Same way we were not using uh, high-flow oxygen mm -hmm. because there was a risk of uh, increased viral shedding in the entire room. Now mm -hmm. we know that's a myth that's not true. Right. So we were discouraged, but we did use steroids sporadically here and there, and anecdotally here and there. We mm -hmm. really did not have any confirmed data to use steroids. Now I'm looking at my current guidelines for our institutions, and right up there, along with Remdesivir. Right. They're citing the NIH guidelines. Okay. Zone and what about inhaled steroids? Have you seen any days. data or any experience with it? Because there is one video floating around of a physician in Texas. I have not seen any studies of it who claims uh, that it's very effective. So with COVID, one of the things which I have uh, noticed with anecdotal reports is you don't know if it is right. really effective because of the drug or is it by the nature of the disease itself. We know right. that 85% or more patients will recover by themselves. So is is the recovery because of something that you did or the, uh, the disease got better by itself? We don't know. We just don't know right. yet. By all means, try everything that you can. You I would say that we have had enough training. We are have enough of our um, uh, scientific mind to know what's going to work and what's not 
what's not going to cause any harm to our patients. And like I said, throw the kitchen right. sink, do whatever you can. These patients need a lot of help. And a lot of them right. are our colleagues. Like you mentioned, yes. your technician. Right. We had exactly. a lot of our exactly. own and colleague patients who got sick. And one of our one of the stalwarts of uh, New York pulmonary, uh, there's a doctor, Stephen Kalmholz. He passed away. And rumor is, it's not confirmed, the rumor is that he, when he was going to see the patients, he was taking all the precautions. But when he came to teach uh, his fellows, very, he probably could have caught it from one it of is, his it's, fellows. It's, it's really, you know, in the years we've been a physician, this is truly uh, one of the most trying and testing time. But I'm also so proud of our entire, not only just physicians and nurses, or all our healthcare providers who have risen to the occasion, both in the United States and in India, everywhere that we know of our extended community. So right. we have to take care of each other and also of our mm-hmm. patients, of course. Uh, switching gears on the convalescent plasma, uh, what are the current guidelines and is it still one of those modalities we are using and is it active? So I've been looking for searching for some real clear-cut data if it is working or not. So prior to our institution getting approval for the plasma trial, I was talking to the blood bank chief of our hospital and he was mentioning mm-hmm. the science behind neutralizing antibodies. Now, when you take plasma from a patient who has recovered, does that patient have enough of neutralizing antibodies? Yeah. That seems to be the crux. Yeah. That seems to be the serious thing that we have to take a look at. So, and those patients who did get uh, antibodies from uh, the plasma from a good source yeah. of neutralizing antibodies, they did well. Some of them did not. My first patient who got plasma, it was probably too late for him. Our, as soon as our trial was approved, he was one of the first ones to get it. And unfortunately, within a few yeah. hours... That is the problem. Gone. I think he, the titer of the antibody is so variable in different specimens that it's hard to predict. That's why the monoclonal antibody I'm really excited right. about. I know they're not out yet, but there are some in trial. Uh, that would be something that could be a very valuable tool. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to that as well. The monoclonal right. antibodies are being used right. so long, uh, so many different diseases, including now even migraine. So, uh, yeah, and, and it's targeting the exact source. And this is a very, uh, ACE, and ACE2 right. right, exactly. Which is like one the of the theories on problem. one of the previous podcasts I recorded. I was speaking to the professor of pediatrics at USF, and she mentions that ACE level inhibitors right. or the receptors are much lower in kids, which is why they may be relatively protected you know so it's a quite a fascinating uh, right yeah so uh, what what is right. the current exactly. theory or thinking in terms of antibody tests i have not had good but, luck we did try to roll out the antibody test in our practice and the results were so variable that we kind of stopped doing it what's your experience been with the antibody test to determine immune status <clears throat> So again, it has been a hit or miss. We are dependent on the uh, outside of the hospital. We're dependent on mm-hmm. commercial labs such as Quest and LabCorp and Bioreference and such. Inside the labs, our hospital has developed its own um, antibody uh, uh, testing formulation. Uh, I mean, apparently, it depends on the, what kind of assays you're using. And for Quest, for example, at least in New York, in my area, mm. it only reports a positive or a negative. It does not give the titles at all. Because apparently the assay that they are using, that 
is so unreliable that they can only report uh, qualitative, not quantitative results. On the other labs, there are smaller labs also that are out there. I have no idea about the quality control and what assays they are using. So I would take that with a pinch of salt, of whatever right. titers they're reporting. IgG and IgM, those are typically the reports that I'm getting. And uh, a lot of times I'm just saying yeah. the titers yeah, from absolutely. one lab do not No, it is. So we've kind of stopped all. doing. I've had patients ask me for it. I discourage it generally because it really doesn't help us much in either way, you know, whether knowing immune status or not. So I've shied away from doing it. So I have been doing it. I have been actually been encouraged right. to do it now that we are on the other side of the curve. We are on the right side of the curve. After the surge is over, now I'm trying to find the surprising patients. Those patients who never had any symptoms or had minimal symptoms or did not realize that they had symptoms right. who are now COVID positive, I mean, antibody yeah. positive. Yeah, so, so I think that there may be some value, them, but we just IEGs. have to standardize the test and really come up with one that we can hang our hat on. Absolutely. And then another thing which I'm hoping for is if we can come up with some, somebody, I'm hoping somebody's doing a study on the tighter levels if they fall off. What's the duration after which the uh, the half of those levels fall off? So some kind, of, so we can guide some kind of. Uh, I think that might be helpful right. with vaccines as well to see how long the immunity will last, or if they just if they produce right, exactly. IgG. So there are some then how long parts is the that the vaccine may only for? last six months or a year, but that's all to be decided. I don't think we have information yet to make up our minds on it. But it's looking encouraging for both the AstraZeneca and the Moderna vaccine, uh, which. I'm told could be out as early as December or January. So that's right. our hope, you know, that, that those make on time and that will get through the next four months. What is your take on opening schools? I mean, yeah. I know it's such a controversial area right now. I commonest questions my colleagues, nurses, my patients ask is, should we send our kids back to school? Um, what's your take? So I can only talk from the medical perspective there's there is of course going to be very high risk of opening schools however by next mm -hmm. month i'm hoping if the levels keep on dropping we should be in a safe spot the, is that safe spot enough there is right. science and then there's social uh, social uh, pressures right. is there going to be and then there's of course politics hanging behind everything so I'm not going to comment on politics i can only comment on what right. i see in my society in the public uh, space there are, people are still afraid a lot of my patients are still afraid to even come to the office. So that, unless there is some change in patient, in the society's um, thinking about it, which is kind of difficult right. if you're right in the midst of it, so close to the school's opening. So in that respect, I would think that it is going to be difficult to open schools in a safe manner. My own daughter is ready to go back to her college yeah. next month. And I, yeah. I really have to think about it, if that's going to be okay or not. And for now, they are calling the kids back, yeah. but they are saying oh, classes will be online only. So at least that's uh, that's yeah. good. But then once the kids go to college, how are they going to behave? And I'm hoping that our kids will behave, uh, yeah. being that they have it seen is, it's what a very, their parents same have here. gone through I have medically. an 11th grader, and they're debating whether online or in person. So... And we have intense debates in our house as well, but I don't have the answer. We're just trying to see we're in the middle of a surge right now. So they did push back opening a few weeks to see, let us settle down. But it is a very difficult uh, scenario overall, you know. Yeah, well, 
IPSI, thank you so much. I know you had a Absolutely. busy day rounding and you're tired. I uh, wish you well. Be well, my friend, and be safe. And I really appreciate it. This was very helpful to me and my listeners. So we'll catch up soon, okay? Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye.